Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. In this episode, we're doing something slightly different, and we're going to be answering all of our listeners' questions from the last couple of months. Let's get started. Hi there, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Ben. Good morning to you. Good morning to you too. And on a very sunny and bright morning. So, Chris, we are doing something slightly different for this episode of the uh, podcast. Typically, if you haven't listened before, we will cover three or four key stories and go into a little bit of depth. Um, on each story to really identify those business trends um, which are useful when you're thinking about your own commercial awareness going into interviews or even starting in the working world Um, whereas this one because we do get lots of questions rather than doing it each episode we've bundled them all together and we're going to cover about 12 or 13 of your questions that you've been asking over the last two or three months if you remember we did an episode like this at the uh, start of the year as well Um, And so you can look back at those questions and we've got a brand new set of questions today as well. Chris, are you all ready for the questions from our listeners? Absolutely, Ben. Looking forward to it. Perfect. Let's get started. So I've tried to bucket the questions uh, that we've had into four categories. I'm going to run through those four categories Uh, as we go through the episode. We're going to start with what I've called developing business knowledge, which sounds a very broad uh, topic and lots of questions have come in these and really do appreciate uh, you on our Instagram and on LinkedIn via email, getting in touch and asking those questions. And I think one thing that we've always said, it's all about sort of curiosity and knowledge and um, really trying to sort of continue that journey of knowledge and that's really essential to commercial awareness so it's brilliant that so many people are engaging with us um, and uh, trying to find out a little bit more Um, first question a really great question from one of our listeners is about ESG Uh, we do get lots of uh, questions and thoughts on this as well and more broadly about sustainable business Um, but someone asked which I think is a very valid question um what do they need to know about esg and sustainable business well the the short answer is uh you need to know an increasing amount because it's really important um esg stands for environmental social and governance and really what that means is if you apply it to a particular business um how how its business operations impact the environment. Uh, and then under the S of social, it's how it engages with its stakeholders, so employees, customers, suppliers, the community. And governance is about its own corporate governance, how, how it is run. Um, and that covers things like uh, leadership, executive pay, um, audits, internal controls, those sort of things, Um, and how that plugs into sustainable business. Sustainable business really comes under the first heading of of environmental, and and it means being able to do business without negatively impacting the environment, or for that matter, the community or, or, or society 
uh, as a whole. So in in terms of um, what you need to know as a as a young professional, um, this is a really major trend in business that is only going to increase. And one measure of it is the amount of a company's uh, annual report and accounts that is devoted to ESG issues. And the answer is it's it's a lot. So um, it's something that I think over the next uh, 10, 20 years is just going to become really, really important. And it is already. I think one thing on this is about... Um... ESG integrated funds. So investors investing in businesses which are, let's say, sustainable or have other benefits. Um, Is that something that uh, students, graduates should know a little bit about? Yes, absolutely. Because the the, the way you're, you're most likely to come across it is that increasingly retail funds, so funds that are run for people to invest in, to put their pensions in, Uh, are taking on uh, ESG factors. There are a lot of funds that explicitly say that they follow ESG principles. But underlying that, and something that might not be quite so visible, is the pressure for companies to adopt ESG-compliant policies is coming from big institutional investors that own their shares. So you would have heard us talk about these before, pension funds, insurance companies, institutional investors. And what's interesting about this is that the reason why they're concerned is because if you're running a pension fund, your time horizon is 30 to 40 years out. You're thinking about who are the people that you've got to provide pensions for over that timescale. And so you don't want to be investing in companies that are either damaging the environment or are not engaging uh, with their communities or not following proper corporate governance guidelines, because if a business is is not compliant in that sense, its long-term future is is really quite shaky. So a lot of the pressure for this is unseen, and it's coming from institutional investors who own these big companies insisting that they adopt these policies. And businesses themselves understand that this is good for business. It's good reputation. It's good with your consumers. If, if you are adopting these policies, it's good for building a long-term business. Exactly. And I think one trend uh, that has been seen, and not looking at the institutional investors, but looking at the consumers, um, there's lots of research suggesting that consumers are maybe happy to pay a little bit more um, for companies that are doing things sustainably. Um, they want to um, buy from companies uh, that are doing certain things, whether it's for the environment, whether it's culturally, um, whether it's supporting certain causes. However, obviously, in the most recent year, with inflation going up, there is sort of that suggestion, maybe, that people are now more looking for what is the best price. People, of course, um, are seeing their wages in real terms go down and therefore potentially not as happy to pay that little bit extra for sustainability and are looking for companies to provide the best value. And so there is at the moment that sort of battle, it feels, between uh, value and uh, companies doing good things, because typically it, it might cost a little bit more to do all of those those things, which is potentially passed on to the consumer. And I, I'd agree with that. But what I would say is I think that's perfectly understandable when people are faced with inflation increasing prices. They have to put... Um, their ability to to buy food for their family before uh, these sort of um, um, concerns. But if any business thinks that that lets them off the hook, 
because consumers don't appear short term to be as concerned. So therefore, a business doesn't have to worry so much about these things. It's it's going to get a nasty shock because uh, the businesses that have embraced ESG factors most successfully have just made them part and parcel of the way they operate and the way they look at the world, which is actually what we all expect them to do. Great stuff. We've had a question about taxes, which is something that we cover quite frequently. So I think we'll cover this off in uh, a, only a short bit of detail. Um, but we had a question from one of our listeners asking us, how do business taxes work? And there was a sub part of the question around, is it still important for businesses to hold offices in low tax areas? So to give a little bit of context about this, if you do business in the UK, you may pay a corporation tax of 25% on profits, or if you're very much a smaller business, maybe slightly less than that. Um, Whereas if you do business in Ireland, um, your corporation tax is half that. So yeah, so Chris, very quickly, how do business tax work? And then is it important to hold offices in low tax areas? It, it's a great question um, because on the face of it, it might seem quite confusing how on earth a business is taxed. But the answer is, although they're, they're subject to separate taxes from individuals, think of them being taxed in the same way. So that as individuals, we're taxed on our income and we're taxed on any capital gains we make from disposals. And then we pay uh council tax, for example, and we pay VAT on on goods and services. And uh, businesses are taxed in the same sort of way. Uh, Their tax is called a corporation tax, but it's a tax on income and they're also taxed on on gains. And the only real difference is that our tax year runs from April to April. We, We can't choose the tax year, whereas a business can choose uh, the 12-month period uh, that is its tax year. So if I start a business on the 1st of January, I could choose to be taxed from January to 31st December. And the other really big difference between us and businesses is that they are allowed to deduct expenses from their taxable profit. So for example, if a business takes out a loan, then uh, the interest it pays on that loan is a business expense, and that reduces the income on which it would otherwise be taxed. In our case, that isn't the case. If we have credit card debt or or interest on a mortgage, we can't set that a, a, against our, our tax. Uh, so with, with that exception, which also explains, and we've talked about this in the past, why businesses are big users of debt, because actually it's quite an efficient way of raising money if you can offset the interest that you pay against tax. That, that aside, the best way to think about businesses and individuals being taxed is, is in a very similar way. And that certainly applies to partnerships, which are collections of individuals, which ultimately are taxed as if they are collections of, of individuals. Great stuff. I think that covers it really well. And just very quickly on the low tax areas. Yes, on low tax areas. It's interesting. This follows on from actually the previous question, because in in, in the past, businesses would say that their, their uh, uh, principal duties to their shareholders, so therefore they need to minimize their expenses, so therefore they need to actively seek out low tax jurisdictions. But over the recent past, there's been a, a change in view. I think uh, businesses that that just locate operations in order to get the benefit of low tax. I think there's a reputational risk there. So nowadays, businesses understand that they can't use that as an excuse just to seek out low tax 
uh, jurisdictions because actually shareholders aren't necessarily as impressed with that as they were in the past. So I think now it's a factor, but no more than that. So if I'm an um, uh, an international business, I'm looking to locate uh, a subsidiary somewhere. I'll be looking at obviously the tax rate, but a lot of other things, the, the nature of the workforce, the skills they've got, the access that that country will give me to particular markets, space for uh, actually building a factory, and also things like clustering. Will I be alongside similar businesses, which means that I'm in a center that, that is one that is served by all of the suppliers that, that I need, and, and more esoteric things like rule of law, enforceability of contracts, political stability. So tax is a factor, but it's not nearly as important as it used to be. Yeah, 100%. I think there was a survey of um, CEOs, a big survey a couple of years back, um, and they asked them what their uh, biggest worry or biggest challenge was. And um, it wasn't tax, it was actually talent. Um, that they talked about hiring, getting the right people into their business. And so if you're thinking about a location, um, and that's the biggest worry of the CEO, it's likely to be that is the first thing they're going to think about when working out where to where to base themselves. Can they get the the talent into the business in that location? And then obviously there'll be a host of other factors um, as well. Question on SMEs, um, SMEs being small to medium-sized businesses, um, and a, a good question on um, how do they go from being small enterprises um, to being global corporations and a little bit about the key challenges around this. So again, I'm going to set a little bit of context. So even though you hear most about the big corporations, whether it be uh, Amazon or Nike or Primark or whatever it might be, most businesses in the UK are SMEs, either um, individuals who set themselves up as businesses or small and medium-sized companies that typically will have a headcount of under 250 people, um, under uh, 50 million pounds of uh, revenue. And that's what kind of makes them uh, uh, as an SME. However, another batch of companies, which again is a very small proportion of the companies in the UK and in the world are known as scale-ups. So these are businesses which are startups or potentially SMEs at the moment, and they are trying to rapidly grow to become big corporations and potentially a word you might have heard of, unicorns, which are companies valued at $1 billion as well. So they're looking for that rapid growth. So I guess basically we're really focusing on uh, those scale-ups because a lot of SMEs they don't want to be much bigger than they already are they're quite happy they're either a sole trader or a small company the uh, CEO the person in charge of it is uh, making some good money they're pretty happy where they're at but for those scale-ups how do they go about really driving that scale and what challenges do they typically face well th this is very interesting because I think it's changed in, in the old days um, most businesses were manufacturers. So the way you would scale up would, would be in stages. You know, you'd add an extra factory, you'd start exporting to overseas markets, you'd increase your workforce. And alongside all of that, you'd put in place the necessary infrastructure. So you'd have an accounts department, you'd have a, a personnel human resources department. In due course, you'd have a technology department. All, all, all of these things, it would all be... Uh, steady as we go. What I think is most interesting is that if you look over the last 20 years at the really big businesses that have emerged, they all tend to be technology driven. 
And the thing about technology is that it can give you enormous market reach internationally with a very small core of, of operations. So this, I think, puts incredible strain on businesses that are very much entrepreneur-led. Entrepreneurs by nature tend to be a bit maverick-like. They're not very good at process. They're not very good at dealing with, with people. So as a business expands, gets more processes, gets more people, they often lack the back office, as it's called, infrastructure that a business needs to scale up. So I think what you're finding is that there are businesses which on the face of it are very, very large that kind of lack stability because they haven't grown up uh, bit by bit. I mean, interesting, if you look at Apple, after Steve Jobs died, Tim Cook took over and Tim Cook had originally been the COO. So he'd been running the company on a daily basis and he was absolutely uh, steeped in process and people and how you run businesses. And actually people thought at the time that he lacked Steve Jobs' imagination. So he wouldn't be able to make a go of it. What he actually had was everything that you need to make a really big company continue to be successful, uh, which is what he did. Whereas if you look at other entrepreneur-led businesses that have expanded very quickly, they often haven't had that, that back office infrastructure in place. And that's when they start to creak at the seams. And the one thing to add on this is that what typically happens with these companies is that they see a market trend or they try and revolutionize something. You can look at that in the uh, banking sector, for instance, but any sector, whether it's shopping, any sector, there's these new new players come in the market and they have huge potential. And then there is a enormous amount of cash put into the business, which is like rocket fuel. And it's expected. The investors know that it may not work. They are taking a punt potentially on a handful of different businesses um, expecting maybe, let's say, they do 10 businesses, put in, let's say, 30 million for the sake of argument each, and they're expecting two to pay off. But when they do pay off, they pay off massive. So uh, there is that kind of culture in some of these scale-ups where they maybe, let's say, 50 people, they get given an enormous amount of capital and the targets that they need to hit are massive, talking about revenue numbers, different countries that they need to be in. Um, user numbers and stuff like that. And a little bit when uh, you see sometimes Netflix, for instance, share price, especially a few years back, go down after they'd added, let's say, 10 million customers because the the market's expected and they were hoping to add 15 million. And you thought Netflix are doing really well. They're doing great, but not as well as the expectation with the capital that they've put into it. So I think when it comes to scale-ups, that is what to really look at. Look at businesses that are doing something maybe new in their sector and then look at where investment is going and then see what happens from there. And as I say, the key challenge is sometimes it, they go a little bit too fast, especially if they don't have the steady leadership, which uh, which Chris talked about in, uh, in his answer too. We've got a question on business trends, Chris, which is quite an interesting one. And I'm going to set a rule on this uh, question, which, uh, which, which sounds very boring, but um, we've got a, an AI couple of questions coming up um we did an episode on it uh, a couple couple back and we've been talking about it regularly 
Um, so let's not talk about this when we ask this business trends question. But the question is very simple, and it's a very good one. Uh, what business trend most interests you at the moment, excluding AI? It's a great question. And, and for me, it's the trend towards reusing things and no longer feeling that you have to own things. So uh, clothing take-back schemes, um, Apple trading, allowing trade-ins of devices, IKEA experimenting with uh, hiring furniture out because as it's increasingly difficult to buy your own place, you're going to be renting, you're less interested in having furniture, you've got to cart around with you. Um, the way streaming has replaced CDs and DVDs, uh, bike subscriptions. I'm really interested in this trend that ultimately emphasizes experience over ownership. The idea that what you're aspiring to in life is being able to experience things, to use things, not necessarily to own them. And I think that that over time will be um, a, a massive transition from, say, the way we look at things now and in the future to the way things were looked at, say, 200 years ago, when, you know, some of your most prized possessions were bits of furniture, which were expensive, which were handed down from generation to generation. Whereas nowadays, if you inherit furniture from your parents or grandparents, probably the first thing you want to do is, is recycle it. And of course, the great thing about this reuse trend is it's it's more environmentally friendly. So that is the trend that interests me the most. Okay, I've got uh, two uh, that I want to talk through. So the first one is around uh, customer experience, which actually ties in slightly, but in a slightly different way to, to what you talked about. But with um, technology allowing us to basically sit um, in a house by ourselves, um, be able to communicate, work, be able to uh, do everything we want, also entertain ourselves through Netflix, through gaming, whatever, whatever it might might be. But it's how businesses go about creating space that we want to be in for us to socialize. You know, 30, 40 years ago, people went to the pub because if they didn't, they couldn't see their friends or they couldn't communicate with their friends. Whereas obviously nowadays you've got a whole host of ways to to communicate with your friends without leaving leaving the house. So I think it's how those physical spaces and those businesses that own physical spaces, whether it be shops, whether it be restaurants, whether it be bars, uh, get people back. And then also how they integrate stuff around sort of the metaverse and new technology into that. So you kind of have an experience which um, is both social and in-person, but also takes the best of tech as well potentially as well i think that's quite an interesting space and then the second thing which i won't dwell on too much is uh slightly philosophical but it is very very important for business too is how we value our lives and the role in work in that and i think the four-day week uh is something that's been quite popular in the media at the moment um but just generally um yeah how we view um, our working life and therefore our non-working life as well and getting that balance right and I think employers potentially struggling to come to grips with how best to do it um, workers demanding very different things than maybe they did definitely 60 70 years ago but even in the last uh, five or ten years um, pre-pandemic um, and I think there's a lot of working out needing to be done over the next few years with uh, with getting that balance right so those are my two. 
which actually is a great segue, I think, into our next question. How can the UK government and business upskill people who have or will lose their jobs to AI? So this comes on the back of someone clearly reading the news over the last week or two. Uh, BT, which is the company that gained most of the headlines in the UK over uh, job cuts, partly because it's a huge company, uh, used to be state-owned, and also the number of jobs that they are uh, cutting, which is 55,000. Um, and the suggestion is that a fifth of these roles could be replaced with AI. So, Chris, putting the positive spin on it, how can the government and business upskill us as a country to ensure that we're not worried about losing jobs to AI? We're just seeing it as a good step in the right direction and we can retrain and uh, be a more advanced working society. Well, you've, you've heard me say this before. I, I think there's a limit to what government can do. It's a very blunt instrument. and It's really about creating and implementing broad brush policies. Um, so I think all government can do really is to provide incentives. But I think business can do an awful lot. And business will want people with the right skills. Um, I think underlying this is that there, there are two opposing points of view. One is this is Armageddon, jobs will disappear, we're going to be taken over by machines. Uh, I don't myself believe that. Whenever there's been um, some kind of industrial revolution, whether the original industrial revolution or the technological one, yes, there is short-term dislocation, but these revolutions tend to create a whole lot of new jobs that simply didn't exist there before. And that's what I think is going to happen. And I think businesses will do a lot to train and retrain people so that they've got they've got a workforce with the right skills. And, and all this does, to my mind, is um, just emphasize that the old attitude to education and training, you, you, you basically front loaded your professional life with all of the education that, and training that you needed. And that lasted you for the rest of your career. That, that's long gone. Nowadays, it's all about lifelong learning. It's about remaining relevant to the market. It's about uh, taking breaks from, from being in work to do other things, including training yourself up for the next stage of your, of your career. So I see all of these things com coming together, but I very much think that the emphasis is going to be on business backed by government incentives to provide the necessary training to make sure that their workforces have got the skills that they need them to have. Agreed. I think there is a bit of a, a challenge around this because I think uh, a lot is pointed at uh, education systems. So whether it be higher education, universities, or, or mainly, let's say, secondary schools as well. Obviously, primary school, you're kind of you know learning the very basics of uh, of, of things. Um, but typically in the UK, if you go to university, you're in education for 17 or, or, or 18 years. So that is a long time, I would say. And the suggestion is, is that people, a lot of people are coming out of UK universities, maybe not with the skills for the working world. The challenge is, is that obviously, if you set a curriculum out for 18 years of education, in 18 years time, you won't know what the skills needed in the working world. But I think they need to start being better at teaching kind of core skills around adaptability, problem solving, um, creative thinking, which sometimes in schools, because you're kind of trained to pass exams, we're missing out on. So 
it's, it, there's no point trying to go right okay in 20 years time this is what the working world will need so let's train people in that way but i think if we can train people to think slightly differently and think in a way that is um more effective um and will be more effective for years to come i think that's a positive step that we can try and take within our education system and then yeah i agree with you chris that uh, businesses will take on a, a huge amount of work and ultimately to keep profits going in the right direction they need a skilled workforce i would sense that especially in the tech space businesses don't feel that um coming out of education they're getting enough people that have the uh, required tech skills actually that's a fact um and therefore um, in the short term at least the onus is going to be very much on them very interesting question. I think we could have talked about that for a very long time, but uh, in this episode, we've got to move on and there'll be lots of uh, research out there, which um, is uh, probably slightly less ranty than my uh, my views on uh, the schooling system. This is an excellent question coming up. Um, I actually can't remember who asked this, but um, whoever did, uh, massive kudos to, to you. Um, it's really thinking commercially and that's exactly what the podcast is called and exactly what we want to encourage. Um, and it's something which uh, has been raised a few times um, politically and in business. But Chris, should the internet be free to all to support UK economic growth? Gosh, this is a, a very good good question. Mm -hmm. um, the way things are at the moment, I think there are social tariffs for low-income households. And so if, if you're on universal credit or receiving disability allowance, then... Uh, there, there, there are uh, subsidies that you can get to, towards yep. the cost, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's still affordable. But given that I think we all agree the internet is absolutely essential, then yes, um, making sure that access to broadband is universal, I, I think is going to be crucial. And I think I'm right in saying that, was it the Labour Party that in the run-up to the last election, they announced this as a policy? But I think... They announced it. They were kind of announcing a fresh policy every day at that point. So I think people didn't really take it seriously. Whereas actually, I think it's a, a terrific suggestion. Yeah. So um, that was uh, under Jeremy Corbyn and before the last election. But I think a lot of the commentary around it was to do with the nationalisation. So I think it was tied into that. So the the core idea, which um, I think. A lot of people potentially would would agree with um was to give every household free internet by 2030 which seems like a good idea but i think it had the rhetoric of um nationalization which i think typically turns quite a few people off um uh, policies uh, like that um so so yeah so it definitely has been in the media there is also uh, i don't know whether it's uh, you could call it a group but there's sort of a recent recent movement um and a lot of sort of high level debate about whether access to internet should be a basic human right, like the idea of right to life or, or yeah. right to education or whatever it might be. And I think that movement will gather, gather strengths. And I think the reason why these things should be looked at in terms of you thinking about your commercial awareness, you thinking actually, you know what, like, yes, it's the right thing to do. Have everyone having access to the internet and knowing how to use the internet gives them access to education, gives them access to um, more opportunity. But also the only way you're going to get people to back it and to get it going through is if there's a commercial or business output to it as well. And I think 
if those cases can be made very effectively by the right people, all of a sudden things like this, which sound a little bit like a wishy-washy idea at the moment, all of a sudden could become um, a, a very positive reality um, in the in the not too distant future um but for that person um yeah massive uh, appreciation for the question um and that's the kind of thing you should be thinking about when uh, when you're thinking commercially and uh, thinking about how the business world works because there's potentially no right or wrong answer but that to me seems like a fairly logical way to to boost productivity and drive the uk economy if we can find a way, a reasonably cost-effective way to do it, which um, is always going to be the challenge. Another very good question, and talking about business case as well, and it ties in very neatly into what I've just sort of talked about, but is there a business case for funding culture and arts in the UK? I presume this question is slightly loaded because um, there have been quite significant cuts uh, to culture funding, the Arts Council, England slashed huge organizations funding. I've read various articles after someone did uh, ask this question around um, comparisons between the UK and Germany, and we don't stand favorably. Um, But I guess at a time where stuff like the NHS and education systems need more money, could you argue it's the right thing to cut the funding for arts and culture or actually... Is there that business case or is there that cultural case that we should be um, keeping these things in in society? Well, it's interesting this because um, it it ties in with things that we've already talked about. So um, right at the start, we were talking about how business isn't just about making profit. It's about ESG. It's about engagement with with your community. And, And Ben, you mentioned that one of the trends you're interested in is um, you know, the way we view our careers and, and getting the balance between work and life outside work um, uh, together. And um, so in a sense, our lives are more than just business. So that means culture and the arts are important. Uh, and it is the case that some important arts simply can't survive unfunded. But I think that in this country, we've got a very strong reason for funding the arts. And that is that it's one of our principal exports. Um Over time, if you look at the sort of things that we provide or sell that other countries may want, it's still the case that tourism is going to play a major role. I mean, there are so many people who want to come to this country to look at it. But also, if you look at uh, our film studios, for example, they are are world-leading. A lot of major Hollywood productions are actually made on sound stages in the UK. If you look at the way in music over the last 20 or 30 years, we've been one of the leaders. If you put all, all of this together, it means that that cultural product or output is actually a major export. It's a major revenue earner for this country. And we should recognize this and fund it accordingly. That's my view. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, just to note for listeners, myself and Chris were actually talking about musicals just before we started this podcast and um, maybe weren't the most complimentary um, about them, probably not to our, our tastes. But even so, I think we're probably very much in agreement um, that uh, more should be done to stop uh, arts and culture uh, being cut. We understand that there are challenges, um, but there is a business case there as well as a cultural societal case as well. Let's move on to the next section.
Right, so the next section is all about applications. We've had plenty of questions about how to demonstrate commercial awareness in applications. And the first question is very much that. Um, how do you demonstrate that you have commercial awareness in your initial written applications? Chris? I, I don't think this is easy to do in practice. So, so my answer is going to appear quite glib, and you're probably going to sit there listening to it, thinking, well, that was that was a fat lot of good. Um, I think that where possible, you need to show knowledge of the business that you're applying to. So you need very much to focus on um, what it is that you bring to that particular business and to be very specific about it. And also, I think, to show knowledge of the role that you're applying for and the role that that plays in the running of the business. So I think you need to demonstrate that you understand what the business is about and what your particular role in it does and contributes to the business. But, but be warned, don't overstate it, because when you're making applications and it's your first or second job, in all honesty, you're not going to. And I've heard people say things like, I'm looking forward to helping transform your business or I'm helping I'm I'm looking forward to being a driver of the organization's profitability or strategic direction and you're thinking I really don't think so I like the enthusiasm but I think it's a bit unrealistic so don't overstate it but do show knowledge of the business and your role within it Actually, we wrote our answers very separately and our notes separately. And I basically wrote exactly the same thing as uh, as you, Chris. We didn't share that uh, between us beforehand. Um, I think I'm probably learning off yourself from previous episodes, to be honest with you. And also learning off your fantastic um, books as as well, which uh, we haven't uh, mentioned yet, which we definitely should, uh, should mention. Definitely go on to uh, um, uh, uh, Amazon or, or similar. Find Chris's books on uh, commercial awareness and knowing the city. They're really good starting points to really understand how businesses that you'll be applying for work. I think the one thing that I would add to that is understanding how the business sort of makes money, who their customers are, and also the pain points of of those of those customers as well. Um, the one thing I would say on the initial uh, written applications, if you're trying to shoehorn that you've got all the knowledge in, sometimes the answer can be lacking. Um, especially if you're if you you don't study a degree like history or English, where a very written degree, you know, make sure you get the answer structure right and then put in little snippets of the knowledge you have rather than going, I need to cram in everything that I know about this company um, because actually um, getting the answer right is is important. Chris, when is the last time you had an interview? This isn't the question, but when is the last time you had an interview? Because we've got a, a question about interviews. So I'm intrigued. Well, I, I feel I've just had an interview because I was going to say to you, Ben, given what you said about about my answer to the last question, do I get the job? Oh, you would have got the job, of, 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 of course. Maybe that's what we could do. Maybe we could do, uh, at the end of the series, a mock interview uh, on commercial awareness questions where uh, we test each other. But no, um, question in, what is the hardest interview question you've ever faced and why? Well, I, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, for me, it's the, it's the same one. It's, it's a question that asks, you know, how have you failed? Because mm. how on earth do you answer that? Because you either admit to a terrible failing and kind of torpedo your chances, or you turn it into a, a kind of um, a slightly conceited 
um, oh, but I failed in this way, but I managed to retrieve it in that way, which always sounds slightly arrogant and self-satisfied. Mm-hmm. So I think that that question, how, how have you failed? I think that's really, really difficult to answer. And I think it's a rather, myself, I think it's a slightly unfair question because you're trying to, you're trying to encourage interviewees to shine. So you don't really want them to focus on things like that. That 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 that's my view. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I actually had on my list, I had a couple on my list. Uh, one of them was what have you learned from your mistakes, which is very similar to the sort of failing point. Um interestingly, I think, and this is legitimately something that was asked uh, a few years ago now, I've been a bright network for a little while, so uh, so I haven't had um, as much recent experience. Um, but what are you most proud of outside of work? And that's a hard one to answer. In work, I know exactly what what I'd say, and I've had that prepared. But outside of work, it's sometimes quite tricky because, you know, you might be proud of something, but you know, it could be quite personal to you. Do you want to share it? What sort of level do you pitch your answer at? Um, if you see what I mean, I always found that because I think, especially in these culture interviews, often they're trying to find the real person um, uh, b- behind the kind of work cell. And I find that balance of going too personal um, or not personal enough quite tricky. Um, so I think it's something definitely to think about when you're talking about stuff which is in your in your personal life a little bit more rather than your 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 work life and i think i've always found that difficult like i'm almost i prefer the sort of uh, work self rather than the uh, getting a bit too personal in interviews which maybe is a, a struggle personally for me but i think it's something definitely to think about chris and ben that's given me the idea you're saying that that one thing it's worth saying i think is that interviews get easier the more senior you become when when you're just starting out and you're applying for your first job you haven't really got a hinterland of work experience to draw upon. So the questions are going to be much more about towards what sort of a person you are and the things that that you do when you're not studying. But as you get on in your career, uh, you'll have an awful lot more to talk about, about how you do the job, how you're proposing to do the job and previous relevant jobs that you've had. So one thing I would say is that as you as you grow into your career, interviews actually become easier because you've got a lot more experience to talk about. So mm-hmm. these these kind of rather odd, unhelpful questions then t- t- tend just to to disappear because there are so many other more useful things that interviewers can ask you and you can talk about. The the other couple of questions which I, I don't really like and I have been asked them. I've seen them being asked in other interviews as well that, that I've been in I've interviewed is things like questions where you'll be asked how do you like to be managed or in three or five years um, which job would you like to have in the company and obviously typically the person that's going to be managing you or potentially the person whose job that you're going to be after in three to five years is going to be in the room. That's quite a difficult question to 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 navigate because if someone says, what job do you want? You probably don't want to stare someone straight in the eye and go, your job, straight away. You've kind of got to word it in the right way. And I find those questions very, very difficult to get that. Again, it's about a balance right between being confident and having a sense of direction, but not... Um, showing that you could be quite difficult to manage within a year because you're going to be over ambitious and trying to knock on the door of uh, someone someone above you's job 
anyway, um, a few thoughts from from myself as well. Soft skills. Everyone would have heard about soft skills. There's plenty of stuff on soft skills on the Bright Network uh, e-learning platform, the Academy. Also, loads of stuff online as well. Um, but Chris, very general question. But what are the most important soft skills? Well, I, I think these change over your career. So I think when you're starting out, it's things like um, enthusiasm, interest in your role and the business. I think also things like getting things right, you know, being being diligent, also being resilient, seeing things through, having that commitment, uh, being a quick learner, you know, being able to pick things up, uh, and then finally taking things on. So a, a willingness to, to get stuck in. But often this is misunderstood. So often people think that using your initiative means uh, taking a task and, and running with it without referring back to your supervisor, whereas actually what your supervisor wants you to do is to refer back rather than run away with something and, and, and becoming a bit of a loose cannon. So that for me is when you're starting out. But over your career, again, going back to what we were saying just now, uh, as you become more senior, I think listening is really important and asking follow-up questions. One of the things that we'll be talking about is the role of CEOs and, and some of the best CEOs, they don't actually spend a lot of time talking. They spend a, a lot of time asking questions and listening. And also, and this is really good when you're dealing with senior people and with clients, empathy, putting yourself in, theirs, in their shoes, understanding the issues that they face and why those issues are important to them. So I think it changes over your career. What, what about you, Ben? I think for graduates, and I've managed graduates for, for, for many years now, stakeholder management and communicating your workload effectively is very, very important. Um, lots happens, and I've always worked in smaller, fast-paced environments, so to-do lists change quite rapidly. New stuff comes up. But often you'll be potentially doing work that you might have more than one senior person involved. So not just maybe your line manager, other stakeholders. It is very important to be able to communicate where you're up to on, on things, um, how long it's likely to take you, um, and what you need to be able to achieve that task to the people around you. And if you can do that clearly and concisely without being annoying that is a major skill which doesn't get talked about enough um i think it's something that you don't typically get asked at an interview but it's vitally vitally important when you get into the working world and more broadly i guess communicating be able to convey an idea clearly and precisely or what you want to say clearly and precisely so that's what i would say on top of what chris said So this section, I wasn't very creative with. It's known as the other section. So basically, all the questions that I couldn't fit into the other three sections are in the other section. So this is a random array of questions that we've been asked. Um, thank you for these questions. They're all brilliant questions, but um, couldn't really tie them all together um, as well as the previous few. First one, which three brands resonate with you most and why? With the interview side of things, with brands that resonate, I wouldn't try and squeeze in something that is related to the company that you're necessarily uh, applying for, unless you're specifically asked within a particular sector. I would go for a very authentic answer uh, to this question. 
and when I was thinking about uh, how I would answer it, um, I would have probably said something about Rebellion Brewery, which is a Marlow-based uh, brewery in um, Buckinghamshire, uh, where I grew up, um, or close to where I grew up. And uh, I don't even drink anymore. I've, I've not been drinking for the last 18 months, but I would still call it a, a brand that really resonates with me. And I think this sense of local pride I just think it's an unbelievably well-run business. And when they talk about things, I actually think, you know what, you speak a lot of sense. They're bringing people together, as we've talked about uh, previously in terms of a business trend that I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm interested in. And as I said, I did, did drink, drink before. And uh, after the pandemic, so before the pandemic, a little quick story on them, before the pandemic, they used to, have taps in their sort of you know farmyard shop um uh, beer taps and glasses by them and you'd be able to pour yourself um and there was a little sign up saying two up to two free pints so they were giving away beer so people be standing in their shops and you know drinking beer and they came up with this email to all the members i was a member of the the brewery this time and said look here are the exact reasons why we can't do that anymore we're really sorry we think it's a great feature we love doing it but what we're going to do is we're going to open up this tap yard outside with discounted prices for members and, and things like that and you sort of go from going well actually you know what i'm going from having something for free and now i'm paying a normal price for a beer but they treated their customers like people like adults and said here's why we can't do it anymore we're really sorry and rather than trying to put any spin on it trying to put any marketing on it they just went this is us this is what we're doing and this is why we have to do it and i end up reading that email on a saturday morning and i went yep completely agree great decision and so as a customer i was thinking well you know it's obviously worse value for myself if i want to go there but as as a brand it clearly had me so hooked in that that i felt that actually i, I felt almost like part of it i'm like thinking i'm glad you made the decision this sounds like a good decision because i want you to you to survive and i think businesses that can invoke that sort of passion from from people in them that is a good brand and that's what you should be talking about in your in your answer think of a brand that you feel that way about long-winded story but hopefully um interesting um none nonetheless and i've given them a, a nice plug as well so if you're in if you're in the buckinghamshire area um uh, highly recommend it not doing a uh, non-alcoholic uh a beer yet but maybe that's in the in the works hopefully if i talk about it they'll 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 create one uh for uh, specifically for me right um we've got another question moving on swiftly um after our episode on what keeps the ceo up at night it doesn't sound like we covered uh, well-known CEOs that we admire because someone has asked us um, to follow up on it, um, who we would say. Well, again, I find this really quite difficult because um, a lot of the CEOs that I particularly respect are really not very well-known. They uh, they run businesses that aren't particularly well, well-known, family businesses that are listed. So I was then thinking, well, what, what do I admire in a CEO? And, and it is things like longevity, having a sense of strategy, having a commitment to, to customers uh, and innovation. But again, going back to the context of the previous question, if you are asked this, is there a well-known CEO that you can refer to um, when answering the question? And one that uh, I think people uh, will have come across because, again, it's a retail business, is Simon Wolfson, who's the CEO of Next. Now, he's been the CEO of Next for a long time. 
And Next has uh, navigated that transition from being bricks and mortar to being online very well. And the market likes Simon Wolfson because he's very good at communicating the issues the business faces and how it's addressing them. So if you're looking for a a well-known CEO to reference, if you're asked that question, then you could start with somebody like Simon Wolfson of Next. Amazing. Yeah, really interesting answer. I, to be honest with you, for myself, um, obviously I've worked at Bright Network for over seven years now. So I've got to um, pay a bit of a, a shout out to uh, James Uffendale. And I think his passion, if you're a member of Bright Network, um, it shines through, especially if you've been to events, seen an event or anything like that. And I think uh, that passion and drive for improvement with him is something that's really resonated with myself. But I think maybe looking slightly further afield and maybe difficult to, to to give names as well. But I also like the idea of a, a more introverted uh, leader, partly because myself being quite introverted and sort of having someone maybe to to look up to that's more in my mold or how I would potentially be as a CEO if I'm imagining it in in, in my head. So when you sort of see people like Elon Musk and Richard Branson, you know, they, they, they like the limelight, they like the spotlight. Whereas I'm more interested in the leaders that kind of let um, their sort of the numbers do the talking. So to, so to speak, they hire the right people. They're good listeners. They don't shout too much um, about what they're doing or what they're achieving. Um, but they're running a very highly effective uh, business, which empowers others to to really um, bring them bring themselves to work and really do a fantastic fantastic job. I think someone like a, a Larry Page at, at Google could be someone that falls into that category. I think a lot of people wouldn't know who who he is on the on the call, despite the fact that he for many years and I think he's on the board still, but many years he was the CEO of of of, of Google. But probably his approach wasn't quite the same as like an Elon Musk, whereas you know. If you're the CEO of Google, you have the potential to be in the press a lot. Whereas uh, I think, as I say, he was a slightly more introverted character, which uh, which which was positive for myself. Chris, I think we're going to leave it there. Yeah, good. Really fantastic answers, Chris. Really appreciate you doing this. And thanks again for all of our listeners. Um, they were really fantastic questions, weren't they, Chris? They were terrific questions. Yes. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah, really good. Don't 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 stop sending in your questions. Um, we are coming towards the end of this series, so we've got one more episode left. So do keep your eyes open for that one next month, um, and then we'll take a, a bit of a break over the summer. But as I say, don't stop your questions coming in because we will get round to them at some point. A big thank you to all of our listeners that did ask questions in that episode. Always do stay in touch with us either on Instagram, email, or our LinkedIn, and do keep asking your questions. It's really important that you stay up to date with the business world, but also stay curious. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, have a great month.